The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Captain John Nesky and a patrol officer went through the door from the garage into the hallway and found a tall young man lying on his back directly inside the doorway, clearly dead from several gunshot wounds to the chest. He was dressed in a gray tank top, blue workout-style shorts, and running shoes. The baseball cap laid nearby. Nesky went through the doorway to the bedroom on the right and found a five-shot black Ruger 38 caliber pistol on the bed. All five shots had been fired. The excited, emotional woman in the driveway told police her name was Pam Hupp. From Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Betsy Faria murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to episode 43, Karma is a Bitch, second cast on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Betsy Faria murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. Each month, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes as I present the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the series, Second Cast, I will cast the story in a new light, examining the path not taken, adding the latest just to shake things up, which is happening right now, and this is part four, and it is Second Cast. Make sure you read the book. You know I have to leave some great stuff out, even in this extra-long series. My CrimeCon Las Vegas interview with Russ Maria, Carol McAfee, and cousin Mary Anderson will follow this episode 43, with a lot of unknown backstory filling the gaps, which you've never heard before. The Faria crew are incredibly honest, exactly as I like them. They did not hold back, scooped me up, and made me one of them, and that is appreciated as they are very special people. So subscribe and don't miss my next. Now, again, make sure you've listened to the prior episodes because it's going to make a lot more sense if you have. That's 40, 41, and 42. So here we go. Convicted in the first trial, Russ waived his rights to a jury trial by his peers in the second trial, going for a bench trial with the judge deciding alone. One tidbit that came out of the second trial That hotly debated pattern in the blood turned out to be from the killer wearing Betsy's socks on his or her hands while handling the knife or other evidence staging the murder scene. And then came the heart-pounding moment of truth as Russ stood before Judge Stephen Ulmer, who weighed the evidence, finding Russell Stephen Faria not guilty of first-degree murder, overwhelmed Relieved, so thankful it was finally over, 
Russ was free to go and live his life. He began adjusting to freedom, going to work for a buddy that ran a motorcycle shop, bought a mobile home, and started renovations on it. He collected Betsy's two insurance policies that had been on hold until all the legal challenges were complete. Some of you may know the name Rodney Lincoln and his story of wrongful conviction. Well, he's also Russ's friend, and they both assist the Innocent Project, an organization that works for the exoneration of people wrongly convicted. Both Russ and Rodney are giving back to help others who found themselves in the same situation. A lesson we can all learn and turning mega sour lemons into lemonade. In January 2016, Leah and Mariah Day sued Pam Hupp to recover the $150,000 of their mother's insurance. Appearing before the St. Charles County Circuit Judge Ted House, attorney David Butch, who had given that all-important new evidence tip to Joel Schwartz as he worked on Russ's appeal, he now argued that by not giving the money to Leah and Mariah Day, Pam committed constructive fraud and benefited from unjust enrichment. Translation, basically Pam Hupp stole the girl's money. Pam's new attorney argued that there was no binding agreement requiring her to give the money to anyone. Covered by Fox 2 News extensively, Pam became a sensation, continuing to make bizarre, contradictory comments. I mean, so what else is new? This is what Pam does. And now she is out and out denying making any statements that Betsy wanted her to give Leah and Mariah the money. And if she did make those statements, it was only if their behavior improved. Pam admitted lying to Betsy's sister about giving the money away. And she stated that she'd lie, quote, to anyone that would bug me and bug me and bug me and bug me, end quote. The most memorable day came when Pam was asked a question that confused her. You have probably seen the video of this. Circling her arms around in the air, she protested loudly, whoa, 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 quoting her. Judge Ted House advised her to just say she didn't understand the question from this point forward. Okay. When asked if she still had the proceeds of that insurance, Pam responded, quote, in November, I used that money to buy a house on the Troy Courthouse steps. It was my personal money in my checking account. I still have the $150,000, end quote. Convoluted as ever, I took this to mean she spent the insurance money. But even her lawyer, Michael Cruz, said in his closing that Pam Hupp wasn't a credible witness. But what was actually at stake here is what Betsy Faria wanted. David Budge was even more convinced now that Pam was a manipulative, lying psychopath. Judge House returned his verdict. Pam Hupp could keep the insurance money. There wasn't enough evidence to determine to a legal certainty what Betsy intended. Disappointed, Booch did file an appeal, but the court upheld House's decision. And I'm sure the law is quite specific here, but I just don't get this ruling. Pam is on police video saying Betsy wanted her to take care of the money for the girls. So if someone gets this, could you please update me and let me know? Jill at MurderShelfBookClub.com because I just don't get this. Skipping as she left the court, Pam saw a Dateline crew filming her. As she crossed the street, her face lit up and Pam shouted, 
Say hi to Kathy, referring to Kathy Singer, who produced all the Dateline episodes on the Betsy Faria case right through April 2022. After the Budge appeal, Russ and Joel decided to attack the legitimacy of the change of beneficiary, which was actually processed after Betsy's death. They contended that the State Farm investigation into Betsy's death was inadequate, but this paled in comparison to the 82-page suit Schwartz and Bevis Schock filed at the U.S. District Court St. Louis in July 2016 against Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney Leah Askey, Sheriff Detectives Ryan McCarrick, Mike Merkel, and Patrick Harney, although McCarrick was now working for the Borisant PD. They were charged with one, fabricating evidence, two, ignoring exonerating evidence, three, failure to investigate the obvious suspect as part of a conspiracy to wrongly convict Russell Faria, depriving him of his civil rights and liberty without due process, a violation of the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments. In 532 paragraphs, this suit documented all the facts in the murder, the alibi, investigation, forensics, and described each as an act of misconduct by ASCII and law enforcement, plus listed all the evidence that should have made Pam Hupp into a viable suspect, but did not. The coaching by detectives, the likely fake polygraph, the bungling of the investigation was laid out. They failed to establish probable cause for arresting Russ Faria, but nevertheless conspired to convict Russ of a crime he couldn't have committed, causing emotional distress, fear, anxiety, humiliation, embarrassment, loss of reputation, and years in prison. Then everything changed. Tuesday, August 16, 2016, 12.06 p.m. O'Fallon, Missouri. A 911 call came in. Quote, hey, hello, there's someone breaking into my house. Help, end quote. The woman's voice was loud, but unemotional, not urgent for someone reporting a live break-in. A muffled male voice is heard in the background. Quote, what we did to your wife, end quote. The woman goes on to say, quote, no, I'm not getting in the car with you. No, get out, get out, get out, end quote. The caller went on to say help repeatedly with the 911 operator repeating, ma'am, can you hear me? Seconds later, there were five gunshots in rapid succession. After another seven seconds of silence, another flat, help, help, resumed, until she finally responded, quote, hello, hello, I just shot an intruder in my house, end quote. She gave her address. She said she didn't know him, that he was still in the house, and shouted that she was going outside, quote, Hurry, 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 hurry. He tried to get me in my car and I ran into the house. I'm in the garage, end quote. When asked about weapons, the woman told the 911 operator, quote, there's a gun on my bed. I shot him, end quote. She also said to the 911 operator, quote, yes, he tried to get in my bedroom after me and I shot him, end quote. Was she hurt? Quote, no, he didn't get to me. He, he didn't get to me, end quote. Her name, Pam. The link to this 911 call is on my blog with some photos, notes, sources at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Captain John Nesky, who I opened with, arrived, seeing a blonde woman holding a yellow lab dog in the driveway. 
The door was open on the dark gray SUV. The overhead door to the garage opened as well. The excited woman was hollering that she had just shot a man who was lying in the hallway of her house. Nesky and another officer found a tall young man lying on his back, clearly dead from several gunshot wounds. The five-shot black ruler was on her bed, and the woman said her name was Pam Hupp. Her story. Pam was backing out of her driveway when a silver car with two men screeched to a stop across the end of her driveway. The man, now dead, ran over and jumped into her passenger seat as the other guy sped off. Pam told police the man called her a bitch and put a knife to her throat, and he told her to drive to the bank to, quote, get Russ's money, end quote. He was difficult to understand, almost as if he were drunk, but she smelled no alcohol on him. She screamed, get out, hit him in the arm, the knife fell to the floor, and she fled to the garage and into the house with him chasing after her. She tried to call 911 three times before she heard the dispatcher. She wasn't able to hold the door closed as he was pushing against it. On the phone with 911, she fled into the bedroom and tried to close the door. It has a difficult lock, so she got her gun from her nightstand and turned to face the door just as it flew open. She began to advance towards him as she fired her gun and kept firing until it was out of bullets, dropping the gun and running outside. They asked Pam if she knew anyone named Russ, whose money her attacker might believe she had in the bank. Pam replied, quote, I don't know anyone named Russ. I don't know what he was talking about, end quote. Interesting, huh? In the small interview room, Detective Kevin Mountain and Detective Matt Wolf listened to Pam Hupp's story, again, of shooting the unidentified young man who tried to pull off a violent kidnapping in a quiet neighborhood on a sunny day. She was shedding a few tears, but was remarkably composed considering she shot a man to death. More details came out. I mean, this is Pam after all. And she suddenly realized that Russ had to be Russ for Rhea, and the money had to be the $150,000 she received from Betsy's life insurance. She said the driver of the car had a buzz cut, dark skin, maybe Hispanic. Mountain realized she was describing Russ. Korea. At first, the story didn't seem impossible, but discrepancies began to pop up. To us, Red Mountains. Pam showed them how she shot the intruder with both hands of her guns while she was talking to the 911 dispatcher. How had that worked? Mountain was also certain that no one in this situation would advance towards an attacker. They would retreat. And listening to the 911 call, it wasn't right. The more investigators listened, the more staged it sounded. More evidence. Inside the dead kidnapper's pocket was a note in a Ziploc bag, and in a scrawled, shaky handwriting, it read, Get Hub in car in garage. Take to bank. Get Russ's money. Should be 100, 150000 Take Hub back to house. Get rid of her. Make look like Russ's wife. Make sure knife is sticking out of neck. It was one of the most chilling things Detective Mountain had ever read. But whoa, 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 On the dead man was another baggie containing nine crisp $100 bills. Was the dead guy really a paid assassin? Police also found cash in Pam's dresser, $300 bills and 450s. One of Pam's $100 bills 
had the last serial number 712B. But five of the bills in the man's pocket bore sequential serial numbers 713B to 717B. What were the odds that two strangers would come to a fatal meeting having consecutive $100 bills in their possession? Why would Pam Hub share $100 bills with the dead guy? More evidence. As the toku knife that Pam knocked out of her assailant's hand wasn't on the floor in the car, it was neatly placed between the front seats blade down, similar to how Pam positioned knives in her kitchen, vertically stuck between the counter and the stove. This had not been knocked from someone's hand. No, no way. And none of her neighbors saw or heard anything. Now, Pam gave DNA. She turned over her cell phone and she agreed to submit fingerprints, although she was now eager to leave and did so with hubby Mark in tow and never actually did give her fingerprints. Vintage Pam. Fingerprints ultimately aided the police in identifying the dead man as 33-year-old Louis Royce Gumpenberger. He had a record for a few minor old infractions with police. His father was deceased. His brother was in prison. By the time they managed to hunt down his mother, Margaret Birch, she filed a missing persons report. Shocked to tears, Margaret Birch refused to accept that her son Louis would force his way into anyone's home. Importantly, in 2005, Lewis had suffered a traumatic brain injury, which left him operating with a diminished mental level, that of about a 12-year-old, making it difficult for him to talk or run. Lewis couldn't drive or use a computer. His mom was legal guardian to Lewis, as well as that of his 11-year-old son. When asked about the note in his pocket directing the kidnapping home invasion, Margaret told the detectives, quote, Lewis didn't write that note because Lewis can't write, like cursive, because it start at the top and slowly go down and get smaller, end quote. There is no way that Pam Hupp's story was true. Police confirmed Lewis Gumpenberger's mental and physical limitations with his doctor. Several friends and neighbors described Lewis as a kind young man who never showed violent tendencies. Not only could he not physically commit the crime, it wouldn't even occur to him. So how had Lewis Gumpenberger wound up dead in Pam Hupp's house? Using Pam's cell phone, police tracked her movements with stunning results, placing her in Lewis Gumpenberger's apartment lot from 1125 to 1129 a.m., so four minutes, just 40 minutes before the shooting. Pam's cell phone then moved to the entrance of her subdivision, at 11.41 a.m., and then to Pam's house from 11.54 a.m. until she called 911 at 12.06 p.m. So it was clear that Pam had driven over to Lewis's place, picked him up, brought him back, and shot him to death. But why? Then it all became crazy crystal clear. The St. Charles police received a tip. Six days before the shooting, a woman, Carol McAfee, reported she was on a porch in a mobile home park, ironically the same mobile home park Mike Corbin lived in, Russ's gaming buddy, when a blonde woman driving a gray SUV drove by, waved, 
turned around and pulled into the other end of her driveway. Carol approached, wondering if she could help. And the blonde woman asked, quote, do you babysit? End quote. Suspicions aroused, eyebrows hitched upward. Carol, a substitute teacher, thought that was a ridiculous question. Quote, no, I don't babysit. End quote. The woman said, I'm Kathy and I'm from Chicago. End quote. More red flags. The SUV had a Missouri license plate and there was no indication it was a rental. The woman then asked, quote, do you know what a sound bite is? End quote. Carol's like, yeah, I'm not stupid. So the woman claimed to be a producer from Dateline and offered Carol $1,000 to help reenact 911 calls for the show. It would be in cash and under the table so there'd be no paper trail for Uncle Sam, she said, smiling. Because, you know, legitimate business doing legitimate sound bites, drive around neighborhoods looking for people to pay under the table. Sure, that, that happens. Never, never. Alarm bells were ringing in Carol's normally suspicious mind. Always trust your guts, murder bookies. But Carol was curious. Eyeballing the woman in jeans and the hospital scrub blouse, Carol said she might be able to help. The woman told her, quote, Oh, if you do, you cannot bring keys, your wallet, your cell phone, or any cigarettes. The producers hate clutter, end quote. Another big red flag. Carol put her dog in the house and while inside, slid a pocket knife up her sleeve and a steak knife in her hoodie pocket, punching 911 into her cell phone without placing the call. She got into the woman's SUV and asked where they were going to record the sound bites. Well, they were going to go to a rented home behind some shops near Lake St. Louis. And Carol could not recall a place that matched that description. Air quotes, Kathy drove carefully, observing the 15 mile per hour speed limit, which is about 24 kilometers per hour, which is usually ignored by everybody, and then turned the wrong direction to leave the park. And Carol was done at this point. Pointing out she was barefoot, she needed to go back and retrieve her shoes. Once there, Carol declined to help further. She had to go. Standing outside the car, this Kathy woman asked, well, could she come back in an hour? And then she saw it. Security cameras mounted on the corners of Carol's home. Huh. Getting back into her car, she stammered, quote, oh, you have security cameras, end quote. As Carol ended the charade, quote, yeah, and I have a knife in my pocket and I'm calling 911, end quote. The woman drove away, you think? Concerned, though, that there's a wackadoo on the loose, Carol posted a warning on the neighborhood online bulletin about a blonde woman in a gray SUV driving around picking up people. Then Carol called the police. All right, her 911 call from the NBC site is on my blog. I just love Carol, by the way. Brassy, intelligent, and street smart. With this information, Detective Kevin Mountain and Scott Pierce called Carol McAfee and arranged for her to be interviewed. Carol was asked to write down what happened with the mysterious Kathy on August 6, 2016. Then, Carol positively identified the third photo in a six-photo lineup as the woman who said she was Kathy from Dateline. Pam Hupp. It was now obvious that Pam had auditioned Carol as the kidnapper victim in her plot to frame Russ in another killing. 
Only Carol's suspicions and caution saved her life. Stymied, Pam was then forced to go find a different victim, Louis Gumpenberger. The acquittal of Russ Faria had refocused attention on Pam Hupp as a murder suspect in the Betsy Faria case. And the allegation is, to deflect attention from herself, Pam decided to frame Russ for hiring a hitman to kill Pam and recover Betsy's insurance money and make Pam's death resemble Betsy's, which would be dumb as hell. Because why would Russ want to do that? So he'd get caught and go back to prison? That makes no sense. But Pam needed some way to tie Russ Faria to this murder. Further investigation would reveal that Pam had trolled the area for a week, hunting for a victim in her scheme, trying to recruit two other men unsuccessfully. Oh, and the security camera at Carol's? Yeah, they got her SUV license plate, going right back to Pam and Mark Hupp. Carol McAfee now became a key witness in Pam Hupp murder investigation. Although she resisted, police insisted that she have security detail 24-7 for the next few days. A search of security cameras along the route between Lewis Stumpenberger's apartment and Pam's house produced a fuzzy, grainy image of Pam's car with a passenger who resembled Lewis in the front seat. Lewis also had instructions to leave the money in a wood pile at what turned out to be Russ's parents' home. Another neighborhood surveillance camera caught Pam's car driving up and past this area home on August 10th, 2016, 19 minutes before she spoke with Carol McAfee. Carol later told Fox News 2, quote, talk about leaving you numb from the neck down. It's hard. You know, you make jokes about it and whatnot, but you sit and you think she was really going to kill me, end quote. Yeah, Carol, she was. We had this conversation. She was targeting you to die. Yeah. Detective Russ McDermott searched online sites for the source of the Santa Cruz knife made by Royal Norfolk Cutlery, which Pam claimed Lewis had used. That exact model was sold in Dollar Tree stores, with three of these being sold in the last month. Pam's cell phone documented her at or near that Dollar Tree seven times between August 2nd and 26th, including two times the morning of the shooting. On the, her August 8th stop, the manager produced a cash receipt for $8.64 that included one of the Santoku knives. Was this Pam's purchase? When detectives checked the crime scene photos from Pam's house, five of the items on that receipt were identified in Pam's cupboard. Ziploc plastic bags found in Lewis's pocket with the directions in cash. Even the notepaper the plot directions were written on as well. Handwriting experts examined the note and concluded it had been written by Pam Hupp. Fun fact! Handwriting analysis is scored on a 1 to 5 scale, one indicating you wrote it, a 5 indicating you didn't. I'm guessing Pam had a 1 or a 2. Russ Faria didn't know what to think when he heard that Pam had shot a man to, quote, get Russ's money, end quote. The story made no sense. He didn't know Louis Gumpenberger had never met him. Joel Schwartz was flabbergasted when Russ called and filled him in. 
but Joel wasn't surprised that Pam had allegedly killed again. Joel had warned U.S. Attorney Callahan of that possibility if she wasn't stopped. But the cold-blooded calculation that went into it, trying to frame Russ likely again, was beyond measure. Believe it or not, the ever-optimistic, wrongfully convicted Russ went to the O'Fallon Police Department to be interviewed, cooperating fully. Okay, wow. Even after the horrific experience he'd had almost five years ago, Russ believed that the police would see he had no connection to which might have been Pam's third murder. He also went with an attorney, which is your right, John Rogers, one of Schwartz's partners, Joel being out of town. The alibi this time. Russ was in the shower when his dad called to tell him about the shooting, and his mother and sister could verify he was home when Pam's SUV delivered the kidnapper to her driveway. Russ provided handwriting samples, DNA, and fingerprints. The police quickly concluded that there was absolutely no link between Russ Faria and Louis Gumpenberger or his death. Man, I'll, I'll tell you, I do not think I'd be as gracious as Russ. He is one stand-up guy. I clearly need to work on myself, and he is my inspiration. On the Gumpenberger shooting, St. Charles County prosecuting attorney Tim Lomar recognized Pam as the woman involved in the crazy Faria controversy in next-door Lincoln County. After listening to the Hop 911 tape, Lomar knew this was no suburban housewife shooting a man breaking into her home. Four years after he was elected to the position, Lomar was no rookie. He'd never seen anything like this, however. Well, who had, really? Detectives concluded that this was a ruthless, premeditated murder. Six days later, Pam Hupp was charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal actions, the exact same charges that Russ faced. Carmen is a bitch, Pam. I'm going to describe this for you. So just before 11 a.m., August 23rd, 2016, driving her SUV, Pam was pulled over by Sergeant Jody Weber and Brian Buchanan. Placed in the unmarked police car, she asked why she'd been arrested and was told for the murder of Louis Gumbenberger. She made no reply, but noticed the TV film crew recording the whole incident. Quote, there's a camera. I don't want to be on camera. End quote. A far cry from her leaving the courthouse, skipping and waving a dateline, enjoying the attention. Being interrogated, Pam was read her rights, signed the forms, and seemed calm. She was willing to answer some questions, but requested her lawyer. Detective Matt Myers left to go make a call to get her attorney. Meanwhile, Pam fidgeted around a bit, drank some water, and palmed a pen from the table. Soon, she was at the door asking to use the bathroom. Escorted by Officer Holly Garza to the restroom, Pam said she had diarrhea. Twice, Garza asked her if she was okay while she waited outside the unlocked door. And both times, Pam answered, almost done. When Officer Garza heard the faucet, but no toilet flushing, Garza knocked loudly, getting no response. Opening the door, there was blood everywhere. Quote, Hey, we need a medic in here, end quote. Pam was on her knees, leaning forward with her face touching the bloody floor by the sink. 
bleeding from her neck and wrists. Her blouse was soaked with blood. Shouting, Pam, Pam, Pam. Officer Myers took the bloody pen from her right hand as the other officers grabbed paper towels to try to staunch the blood flow. Pam Hupp had repeatedly stabbed herself in the neck with a pen in a suicide attempt. Eyes closed, but conscious. She said she didn't want to get in trouble for stealing the pen. En route to the hospital, a medic asked her why she did it, and she said, quote, I don't know why. I was scared, end quote. Surgery was performed at St. Louis University Hospital, repairing most of the superficial damage. She had security at her room for the next two days, after which she was transferred to the St. Charles County Jail. Prosecutor Lomar requested a $2 million cash-only bail, which was granted by the judge. The news of Pam Hupp's arrest exploded across the region, her mugshot going viral. Wild hair, a weird smirky frown on her face. There were thick bandages around her throat, hence the nickname Pam Hupp's Maxi Shot. Ouch. I did hear her compare to Gary Boosie's mugshot, and I honestly see it. I really do. Russ Faria and Joel Schwartz said what everyone was thinking. If Lincoln County PD and prosecuting attorney Leah Askey had done their jobs correctly and competently five years earlier, they would have charged Pam with Betsy Faria's murder and Louis Gumpenberger would be alive today. I have to conclude they have blood on their hands. Leah Askey issued a statement saying Lincoln County officers had been cooperating for months with the U.S. Attorney's Office on a review of the Faria murder. Her office would defer to federal prosecutors for, quote, guidance and direction on any further investigative efforts, end quote. U.S. Attorney Richard Callahan confirmed this. A search warrant for Pam and Mark's 29-year-old son Travis's home was conducted within three hours of Pam's arrest. A deposit slip showed that $122,574.84 had been put into Travis's account. A handwritten note in a plastic bag, the third note in a plastic bag linked to Pam Hupp, by the way, read that the Hupp business, H2 Partners LLC, were loaning Travis Hupp the money at $5 a year interest with Pam and Mark signing. Travis stated that on August 20th, his mom came over, urging him to deposit the money into his account in case the courts froze hers. He hadn't thought twice about it, and he did as his mom asked. The day of the murder, police found Pam's $100 bills, which were evidence. When Mark Hupp didn't respond to their phone calls, they broke down the door and they searched the Hupp home. No luck. They did find a small safe, however. And after tracking down the combination, it contained a tube of KY jelly. Pam's suggestion was clear for all to see. Two days after Pam's arrest, police asked Mark Hupp to provide fingerprints, DNA, and a handwriting sample. Rambling that there was a bigger picture to all of this, that Russ Faria's friends never gave samples, Mark declined to give samples or to cooperate. They never heard from Mark again, but we'll have more on Mark Huff later, I promise. Prosecutor Tim Lomar was seeking the death penalty 
as this murder was, quote, outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman that involved the depravity of the mind, end quote. The callousness of choosing Lewis as her victim was, quote, random and without regard to the victim's identity, end quote. And Pam's crime qualified as, quote, one of the worst of the worst, end quote. Pam Hupp denies killing anyone. At the pretrial motion, the Betsy Faria case came back to haunt Leah Askey and Judge Christina Menenmeyer. Who recalls the name Mike Wood? I said he'd be back. Mike Wood was the young assistant prosecutor who worked for Prosecutor Leah Askey back in 2013 and watched Askey's closing argument at Russ's first trial, who was so appalled at her breaching ethical guidelines, Wood left Askey's office. Now, Wood declared his candidacy for prosecuting attorney as a Republican. During this campaign, Wood made much of Askey's poor judgment and unethical conduct during the Faria trial. Askey, a Democrat who had dropped her ex-husband's name and was now remarried Leah Cheney, now switched to the Republican Party before the primary, forcing an epic primary battle with Wood. This is a woman of firm convictions and principles, not even a little bit. So hold that thought. In 2012, Judge Christine Kunza Menenmeyer pulled off an unexpected election victory and was re-elected to the court. The celebration was short-lived, however, when she began having some serious issues. So under Missouri law, the timetable a public defender can appear in court or file on behalf of a defendant charged with a violation is a thing. Men and Meyer would argue correctly that no public defender can represent a client before they are appointed by the court. All right, that's fair enough. But in 2014, complaints came in about Judge Menenmeyer. Complaint was filed by the director of Missouri State Public Defender System, alleging Menenmeyer deliberately delayed assigning public defenders to cases until after the deadline for requesting a new judge for a case had passed. Oh man, that's sad. A decision came in January 2017. Judge Menemeyer was given a unpaid six-month suspension imposed with no opposition from her. The Missouri Supreme Court decision cited among her errors. She had intentionally delayed the case of eight people for 60 to 70 days, resulting in repeated filing motions to remove Menemeyer from their cases. The delays resulted in those defendants staying in jail longer while awaiting disposition of their cases. The Missouri Supreme Court Judge Paul C. Wilson wrote that Menemeyer, quote, purposely subverted the rights of some of the defendants in her feud with the public defender and was therefore in violation of judicial ethics, end quote. I'm not surprised. When evaluating Menemeyer's tenure as a judge, it seems she was reversed by appeal courts a lot, as in the Faria case. Another local attorney's perspective on Judge Christine Menemeyer, lawyer Lynette Petruska said, quote, I have to assume the judge was operating on good faith belief that she was doing the right thing. But the Court of Appeals told her she was wrong three times in a row. That is unusual. 
end quote. Election 2018 was a reckoning for both Askey Cheney and Judge Menenmeyer. Republican voters had to decide between Leah Askey Cheney or Mike Wood. Leah Cheney defended herself, saying it was unfair to judge her record over eight years on the one Faria case. Wood won with 75% of the vote. Cheney returned to private practice. Lord, shine the light of knowledge on Leah Cheney as she helps her clients. Oh, okay. During the campaign, Judge Christine Menenmeyer was quoted saying, I treat all litigants the same, regardless of whether they have a lawyer or not. Everybody gets their day in court. Post suspension, Menenmeyer placed third in the three way race with 21% of the vote, losing to Victor Patrick Flynn. Told you, karma is a bitch. So Pam Hopp was in jail for about three years before her trial was finally to begin in June 2019. Prison officials told prosecutor Tim Lomar that Pam was telling everyone in jail that she's being held on traffic charges. She had adopted a mother hen role, still trying to exercise her control over others. Pam continued to manipulate, pitting prisoners and even guards against each other. Now, that kind of behavior is an important sign of borderline personality disorder. Everything in your life is peaceful, flowing along, and then a new person comes on the scene. And within weeks, everybody is fighting with everybody else. Aha! New person is a borderline. Pam's lawyers, Brad Kessler and Nicholas Williams, were fighting hard with the death penalty on the table convincing the St. Charles County judge that there was way too much pretrial publicity to get a fair trial, he decided that jurors would be chosen from 250 miles away in Platte County, north of Kansas City, Missouri. The mysterious death of Pam's mother, Shirley Newman, was prohibited from mention at trial. However, evidence from the Betsy Faria murder could come in given the note specifically mentioned Russ's money and making Pam's death look similar to Betsy's. Early spring 2019 brought possible plea deal negotiations, which of course went back and forth. In the May 2022 Dateline episode, a prisoner phone call conversation between Pam and Mark Cup is played with them deciding whether or not to take the deal. She tells him it's a no-win situation, that she did the right thing. Mark replies, quote, I don't know how it's not a win situation if you did what you did for the right reasons, end quote. And Pam told him, right, I, I did. Mark says, quote, I don't know how you can be held accountable for that then. If it was me, I wouldn't admit something I didn't do, end quote. Pam also explains that this is the best deal that they offered. So I think this gives us a little bit of insight into the Pam-Mark marriage. He he's all in. He believes Pam. He's not looking at the evidence. He just believes his wife. He's not looking at the evidence. Not yet. With the agreement of Louis Gumpenberger's mother, Prosecutor Lomar proposed that if Pam would plead guilty to first-degree murder, he would drop the death penalty in favor of life without parole. The defense proposed if Pam could enter an Alfred plea, 
She wouldn't admit she committed the murder, but she would agree that the prosecution had enough evidence to convict her in a trial, and then she would accept the plea. On June 19th, 2019, without a single hub in sight, Russ Faria, his family friends, Joel Schwartz, Nate Swanson, Margaret Birch, watched. The chunky blonde was gone, replaced by a gaunt, gray-haired old woman. Judge John Cunningham recited the facts of the Gumpenberger case and confirmed Pam was voluntarily pleading guilty. After a long, hesitating, awkward pause with tension building, Pam finally confirmed she was pleading guilty. With the Alfred plea, Pam didn't have to take responsibility for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. And in another phone recording with Mark Hupp, Pam actually gloats about not having to take responsibility for the murder. But it is still a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and she will die in her prison cell for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. But who is Louis Gumpenberger? I mean, he's a lot more than just Pam Hupp's victim. He was a son, brother, lover, father, friend. Born February 17, 1983, in Sullivan, Missouri, he is an Aquarius. He is the son of Margaret Birch and Michael Kenneth Gumpenberger, growing up with brothers Michael and Robert Gumpenberger. Lewis also had two stepbrothers, Adam and James Birch. His grandfather, Carl Birch, loved his grandson very much, as did his uncles, David and Jean Birch and stepmother, Melba Birch. So we're talking a large extended family. His mom described Lewis as a mama's boy. Repeatedly, those who knew him spoke of him as a kind person, full of infectious laughter, triggered by his great sense of humor. Lewis was genuinely a sweet guy, a flirt, and a very good friend. Shannon Zoll, Lewis's former girlfriend, spoke warmly about him. They met through friends back in middle school, speaking on the phone for three months before they even met in person. Kind of sounds like today, actually. Shannon described Lewis as outgoing, outspoken, and was into Taekwondo. He loved to be the center of attention and was so much fun to be around. His favorite actor? Jim Carrey. Shannon and Lewis had two children together, Desi Ray and Trevelyan Lloyd. And while fatherhood came as a surprise at first, Lewis loved being a dad doting on his kids. While Shannon and Lewis broke up romantically, they remained good friends and co-parents, with Lewis actively involved with raising his kids, who loved Uno, loved that card game. After his death, Shannon's daughter, then eight, said that her dad was a hero. He was like a dad to everyone, and he'd never hurt anyone. And their son spoke of his dad visiting him in his dreams, assuring him that everything is all right. Disabled in that 2005 car accident, Lewis's dream of being a Taekwondo black belt ended with him one belt away. He went on to struggle with developmental delays requiring hard work to progress and improve. Living with his mom, on his mom's birthday, he got her birds, which she loved as her birthday present. Margaret would say her son enjoyed taking long walks and was a hip hugger, but was far too trusting of others. She had recently told him that she understood he wanted friends, but he had to be more careful, and it turned out to be fateful advice. In August 2016, 
Lewis was looking forward to the future, excited as he had a job interview scheduled on August 17th with the St. Peter's business that works for the disabled. Katie Jones, the program director, told Fox 2 Now that Lewis hadn't shown up for the long-awaited interview. Quote, it was odd he didn't show up because he really, and I mean he had come up here so many times wanting the job, so we knew something was off for him not to show up for the interview. End quote. The morning of August 16th, 2016, Gumpenberger helped his 11-year-old son get ready for school, just like any other day. Margaret Birch went into her room and came out to find Lewis gone without his keys or wallet. By the time school was over, Lewis had not come home. When Lewis's mom called Katie Jones to say she couldn't find her son, everyone realized that this could be more serious than forgetting the time. Margaret Birch filed a missing person report with the O'Fallon PD. When they showed up later in that day, she was initially relieved that they found Lewis so quickly, only to be shattered when they learned that Lewis had been shot to death in Pam Pup's home, with her claiming it was a home invasion. Mrs. Birch quickly put that to rest, telling them of Lewis's disability and that there was, quote, no way in hell he could break into anyone's house. He couldn't move his right side. He can barely hold a spoon, end quote. So quickly, Pam's story is unraveling and she's becoming the prime suspect. Director Katie Jones said, quote, Lewis was a very kind person. He was gullible. I would say that about him. He was agreeable, but like I said, not a violent person. So again, disbelief, because I couldn't understand how the situation would occur. How he, who doesn't drive himself, who has a disability, a traumatic brain injury, how the situation could even come about, end quote. One reason that Lewis was such a great candidate for the job with Jones is that he had formerly worked for BCI Packaging, who issued a statement learning of Lewis Gumpenberger's death. Quote, BCI received notice of a tragic incident involving a former employee. On Thursday, August 18th, our organization was contacted regarding the killing of Lewis Gumpenberger during a complicated and unfortunate situation. In this sensitive time, we understand there may be confusion and concerns regarding this heartbreaking occurrence. An investigation is underway, and BCI Packaging will do everything possible to work with the authorities regarding this matter. In 2014, Lewis ended his employment with BCI Packaging, and we are deeply disheartened to learn of this event. The entire BCI Packaging organization extends its deepest sympathies to all who are affected by this distressing incident, end quote. That's stand-up. Yeah, that's, they did the right thing there. It was left to Lewis's mom to break the terrible news to her grandson that something had happened to his daddy. Mrs. Birch told KSDK that she sat down with Trevelyan and said, quote, your daddy's in heaven and he won't be home waiting for us, end quote. There is a GoFundMe page for Lewis's family and children, and I have it linked on my blog if you would care to donate. Immediately after Lewis was killed, Shannon Zoll was in shock, simply horrified. For days, she thought Lewis was a burglar, a criminal, but she also knew in her heart it could not be true. When Shannon learned of the plot that had killed Lewis, she said, quote, It was a relief to hear he was not a burglar that this woman did this and he was innocent, like I knew the whole time, 
It's hard to handle knowing this woman's past now. When I am speaking to someone about it, saying her name makes me sick. The Lewis I knew before the accident, if someone had come up to him and offered him money to do anything, he would have been very suspicious, end quote. With time to reflect, Shannon gave us this 2019 update. Quote, I've been angry. I've been really, really angry. And it's easy to be angry. It's easy to chastise Lincoln County. All that stuff is easy. It's easy to say it shouldn't have happened. The hard part is now, now that she's been sentenced and there's no more court dates, the hardest part is remembering Lewis. The good part is sharing with everybody about Lewis. We got robbed of that. It didn't matter how old our son got. His daddy would want to sit in the back with him most of the time. Nobody got to brag about how far he's come since the accident, end quote. Well, that is the downside of Pam's Alfred plea. No actual trial, no big day in court. On Oxygen's Snapped, as reported by Fox 2 News, Margaret Birch commented that Pam was still acting arrogant and prideful about her college degree. And then pausing, Margaret Birch asked a poignant question. If she's so smart, why is she sitting where she's sitting? Spot on Mrs. Birch. And of course, she also remembered her son as a dad. Quote, he was an excellent father, loved his babies. He always put his kids first, always. Anyone that knows Lewis knows that he made mistakes, but also knows he has a good heart, end quote. At sentencing, Margaret Birch told the judge that her now 15-year-old grandson still suffers from nightmares about the cold-blooded murder. She said, quote, he's terrified to go to school or spend the night with a friend because he's afraid I won't be here when he gets home, end quote. Proud grandma, she added that her grandson, quote, looks just like his late father and misses that his daddy can't spoil him anymore, end quote. She now believes that the money Pam offered would have been used to pay off some family debts. Quote, Lewis died trying to provide for his family, end quote. What a damn shame. Lewis survived this terrible head injury only to have the unthinkable happen when Pam drove up to him randomly on August 16th, 2016. Carol McAfee was in court at Pam's sentencing too, and she caught Pam's attention. Quote, I want you to know I'm the one who put you here, bitch, end quote. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pam's attorney complained. Sure he did. Good for you, Carol. Wearing a pin with Lewis's face on it, Crystal Kahn, Lewis Gumbenberger's half-sister, delivered a tearful victim impact statement, saying that, quote, Huck has done nothing but cause heartbreak and grief to so many families, and called her a serial killer, monster, and a coward who took an innocent man away from his children. Pam made no statement. Later, Crystal told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that she remembers Lewis for his corny laugh, love of his mother, and devotion to his two children. St. Charles County Circuit Court Judge John Cunningham said to Huck, quote, He was an innocent person whose life did not deserve to be extinguished by you, end quote. Sentencing Pamela Marie Huck to life without parole with concurrent 30 years for armed criminal actions. At the following press conference, Tim Lomar praised the Fallon PD for a brilliant investigation describing this plot of Huck's as, quote, like something a middle school kid would come up with to write a crime story, end quote. 
Mulmar also made it very clear. Russ Faria had nothing to do with this kidnapping murder plot. Pam Hupp was now allegedly linked to three separate deaths, Betsy Faria, Shirley Newman, and Louis Gumpenberger. She would never take a step as a free woman again. Almost two years after Lewis's death, Margaret Birch revealed that her life since Pam Hump emptied her gun into Lewis, quote, has been hell. Every day I remember my kid, end quote. And while she doesn't believe she will ever forgive Pam Hump for killing her beloved son, she believes that Lewis would because he was that kind of guy. Over in St. Charles County, Prosecutor Mike Wood reopened the investigation into the death of Betsy Faria, commenting later that, quote, for law enforcement to actually come out and say we believe there was a shoddy investigation and we believe it should have gone the other way, for that to be publicly said means a whole lot, end quote. Well, yes, indeedy. I am very impressed by Mr. Wood. He is an honest man. Dateline's Keith Morrison's unmistakable voice asked, quote, where does it live evil, end quote. I do a really bad Keith Morrison impersonation, clearly. I apologize. September 27th, 2019, an episode aired called The Thing About Pam, fifth on the Faria Hub case. It was screened in a New York theater with Russ and Joel attending, and the ratings were amazing with only those of O.J. Simpson and John JonBenet Ramsey, which was the subject of my previous trilogy, drew higher ratings. In May 2020, with NBC announcing a six-part podcast that would be based on the six-part scripted TV series with Renee Zellweger playing Pam, Josh Dumel as Joel Schwartz, Judy Greer as Leah Askey-Cheney, and Katie Mixon as Betsy Faria. This was so well done. Use the magic of On Demand or Watch on Hulu. It is well worth it. In 2016, Russ filed a lawsuit against police defendants, McCarrick, Merkel, Harney, Lincoln County, and Prosecutor Lear Askey Cheney. In a 2019 decision, the U.S. District Court Judge John A. Ross removed Askey Cheney from the suit due to prosecutorial immunity. Quote, the decision of a prosecutor is to file criminal charges, which is within the set of core functions, which is protected by absolute immunity, even if the prosecutor makes that decision in a consciously malicious manner or vindictively or without adequate investigation or in excess of his jurisdiction, end quote. Huh. Well, isn't that fantastic? So protection for the malicious, vindictive, and incompetent prosecutor. How very 18th century. This has got to change. Lincoln County as a government entity was also left off the hook by the ruling. However, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department, Sergeant Ryan McCarrick, Detective Mike Merkle, and Detective Patrick Harney's request for summary judgment was denied by the court, and much of what Russ alleged was affirmed. After another legal hassle between Lincoln County and their insurance companies, a settlement was reached and Russ received a $2 million award stemming from the suit against these police defendants. Prosecutor Wood said he is obligated to get justice for Betsy, but is also standing up 
to ensure that no one is above the law, not even prosecutors or police. Preach into the choir, Mr. Wood. His investigation of the shenanigans by investigators and prosecutors is ongoing. Stay tuned. In July 2020, a St. Charles Circuit Court ordered Pam to pay Margaret Birch $3 million in a wrongful death suit over the murder of her son, Lewis. An empty victory, as Lewis cannot share this with his family. And the unmitigated gall. All right, September 2020, more twists and turns. Pam Hupp tries to withdraw her Alfred guilty plea, blaming COVID-19 for missing the February 2020 deadline to file a petition. Judge Cunningham denied her in February 2021. Update number one. By then, Pam is a single woman as Mark Hupp filed for divorce on October 12, 2020, it being granted five weeks later. Reports are that Pam was furious because she and Mark had decided before she went to jail that there would be no divorce. Mark Hupp's new wife, uh, yes, he remarried, is also named Pam. So Pam Hupp, you can't control everyone and everything. And amazingly, after enjoying years of a solid friendship hanging out, Carol McAfee and Russ Faria fell in love with Carol moving in with him and vowing to make Russ smile every day. She totally gets that part of his heart will always belong to Betsy, which means to her that he is a man of integrity. Bravo, Carol, for being secure, confident, and level-headed and being the right woman for a good man like Russ Fourier. Now, there are many questions, many, but the million-dollar one is, what the hell caused Pam to launch at age 53 onto a path that led to the murder of possibly three people? Well, here's where the psychology kicks in for me. Some background on Pam. Pam Marie Newman was born in October 1958, the third of four children growing up in a middle-class family in Delwood, a suburb of St. Louis. Dad was a lineman for the electric company, and Mom Shirley, who we've talked about, was a primary school teacher. Reports have it that the Newmans were functional alcoholics who could be verbally and once in a while physically abusive. Pam developed a rebellious streak growing up, making her a bit of a loose cannon, according to those who knew her. Now, we know she has no filter for sure. Even so, she was a happy kid, goofy, fun-loving teenager, willing to try anything once. A good athlete, Pam played shortstop in her high school softball team, did gymnastics, and was on the pom-pom squad. Smart, but easily bored, she hated school. A boy she dated in high school took her to prom, and then the cliche was they had to get married a few months later and their daughter, Sarah, was born in March of 1978. While her husband had a soccer scholarship to Washington University, he soon realized that this is not going to work with a wife and a child, so he took a job as a carpenter. Pam had taken classes too, but dropped out. Short of money, conflicts mounting, they went through an ugly divorce in 1983. By now, Pam was dating Mark Hupp, who had played minor league baseball. They married in November of 1983. 
moving to Florida, Pam earned a degree in computer science, and their son was born in 1987. Pam began working at State Farm Insurance and continued working there when they moved back to St. Louis in 2001. So far, she is a perfectly normal person. But there were signs. <laughs> First day at State Farm, Pam met Betsy Faria. None of her colleagues described Pam as violent, but the words vindictive and difficult were tossed around often. Reports indicated she hated her mother, Shirley, and avoided her even after Pam's dad died in 2000. When Pam's married daughter excitedly shared that she was bidding on a house in foreclosure, Pam told her it was too expensive for her and then outbid her by $1,000, buying it right out from under her. Pam then sold it for a profit, her selfishness on display for all to see. Who does that to their own child? Pam Hop. A longtime friend of Pam's, Barbara Conti, was interviewed on Dateline in April 2022. 20 years before, they'd met and were drawn together, being two of the very few 40-somethings living in the neighborhood, and the couples would, you know, go out to dinner and do stuff. Barbara described Pam as intelligent and someone who liked to beat the system. She liked to win. Yeah, you can ask Sarah about that. Barbara Conti also shared a story about the neighborhood where she and the Hubs lived. Out of the blue, Barbara received a couple of nasty letters, mailed, typed. Barbara had read one, and then she happened to speak with Pam about it. And Pam told Barbara a story that she'd been over at another neighbor's, and they were being derogatory about Barbara, about her dog barking, her plants, pots, all kinds of stuff. Pam suggested they were pretty drunk, but maybe they wrote it. While Barbara Conti was surprised at this, I am not surprised. This is what those with borderline personality disorder do. They stir the pot and they get neighbors fighting with each other. Drum, 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 drama. In my humble opinion, she's borderline. Having stormy, unstable personal relationships with people. Her mom, her ex-husband, her children, her co-workers, her friends, acquaintances. In the end, we don't know who wrote the malignant letters, and the Contis and the Huffs moved out of the neighborhood and lost touch. When Barbara heard about Pam's arrest for murder, at first she was fearful for Pam, but as the facts came out, Barbara had to pause and reflect, quote, who was that? Something just wasn't right, end quote. Joel Schwartz's private investigator Unearth reports that Pam possibly was fired from two insurance jobs over allegations of forging documents. Conflict with other employees abound. Note, more examples of stormy relationships everywhere, resulting in the cars in Pam's employee lot being keyed in retaliation. While everyone was really vague about what went on here, more than one pointed to Pam's apparent willingness to engage in criminal conduct when it suited her. Pam denies this. Now, 2019 may have been a turning point for Pam. Working at United Healthcare, carrying a stack of files, Pam tripped, falling headfirst into a filing cabinet. She suffered head and back injuries that required surgery and substantial physical therapy. Okay, this did happen. This was real. We, we know this. It's verified. 
Relatives say there was a big personality change stemming from this brain injury, which means she may have damaged her orbital frontal cortex. That's the front part of her brain in the fall. The orbital frontal cortex is a mechanism for controlling impulsivity. Plus, it plays a role in our ability to empathize. Once damaged, personalities can become more irritable and depressed. A full 30% of traumatic brain injury patients report struggles with anger and aggressive behavior, as reported in a neuropsychological study by Dr. Vanny Rao et al. That seems to match what's been observed about Pam Hump post-injury. Overstimulation can be a problem too, and a person can lash out. Now I'm visualizing Pam doing her arm-waving circles and the whoa-whoa-whoa-whoes that she did when she became overwhelmed on the witness stand, not understanding what she was being asked. That may have been organic rather than some deliberate tactic she adopted, or maybe a convenient combination of both. Finally, brain injury patients seem to develop a more self-centered personality due to this kind of damage. This is totally Pam Hop. All right, for example, in the brain, the right supramarginal gyrus helps people overcome egocentric bias. That is the selfishness when making decisions. So recall Pam throwing her daughter under the bus when she was trying to buy the house. Now I haven't seen Pam's medical records, but looking at her behavior, I do think this makes sense. Many of her most outrageous acts occurred after the 2009 fall. Now, please do not think that I am giving Pam a pass or excusing her behavior. I am analyzing her behavior from my vantage point. She is a reprehensible monster to me, but I am interested in her behavior. What I do know as a fact, according to Hup relatives, Pam suffered from depression, confusion, pain, fear, and significant memory deficits becoming delusional after that fall. She began telling paranoid stories about a man sneaking into her room at night as he planned to kill her son. She kept her drinking straws, and now I'm picturing Renee Zellweger sucking down one of those Wawa mega cups, but she kept these straws next to her for self-defense because Pam planned to jab them into his eyes if he were attacking her. Acting very erratic, family members wrote a letter to her rehab complaining that the care Pam was receiving wasn't working. Her balance issues resulted in several more falls, and they suggested that Pam was over-medicated on prescriptions for Valium, antidepressants, pain relievers, including oxycodone and hydrocodone, sedatives, and ambient for insomnia. Her inappropriate actions and lack of a filter was also noted. Pam believed that family members were trying to kill her too. The family was actually worried that Pam was poisoning relatives' dogs because she didn't think they were being cared for properly. So this is a disturbed thinking pattern going on here. It was a family insider who suggests that Pam's outrageous comments and erratic behavior and deadly turn stemmed from the brain injury. I am seeing some indicators of this, but this is an equally valid observation. Pam Hupp's version of crazy is insensitivity, selfishness, lack of a filter, being morally bankrupt, and were all part of her personality prior to the 2009 fall. 
So this has always been part of Pam Hupp. So why I believe the damage from the fall may have exacerbated many of these issues for her, she chose to also use it as an excuse. She was disabled and a victim. Don't challenge me. No one could hold her accountable for anything she said or did. Why do I think this? Joel Schwartz points out that there's a video of a very robust Pam running away from media cameras without her disability and evidence. But at another point, she walked into the courthouse perfectly well, but before the jury, she was limping, obviously orchestrating the jury to be sympathetic to her. It has been reported that her parents, Victor and Shirley Newman, were functional alcoholics. Years ago, I read Janet G. Wojtyk's book, Adult Children of Alcoholics, and I can see Pam as having many of the 13 characteristics she outlines. I won't do all 13, I promise. Even with the best intentions, alcoholic parents aren't always capable of fulfilling the needs of their children. If true, as a child, Pam was likely familiar with insecurity and the feeling of never knowing what to expect from one day to the next, an emotional roller coaster. Parents would be loving one day and cold and rejecting the next. I think this contributed to Pam becoming so controlling as an adult. Pam grew up needing attention, positive or negative, it didn't matter. She would get attention, hence many of her quirky antics, inappropriate comments, the selfishness. It became all about Pam because she would have it no other way. Fearing abandonment, children of alcoholics do not take lovers or spouses, they take hostages. All right, this goes to that controlling nature. Well, let's face it, Pam ruled the roost, and Mark Hupp went along and acquiesced and let her lead, and her children's needs certainly came second. Pam clearly saw herself in the role of the victim. After Betsy's murder, she describes herself as being so put upon, doing all of this for Mariah and Leah while handling her own family, and we know this is totally disingenuous. She wasn't doing anything for Mariah or Leah, but wanted to get the $150,000 in her hot little hands and put them in her own bank account. But she presents herself as suffering disabled Pam, doing it all for these others. Just gag me. Defensive to criticism. No one really likes criticism, but adults, you know, we learn and we honestly evaluate whether it's warranted or not. Or we, we should, that's what we're supposed to do, but not Pam. Pam is vindictive. Do not get on her bad side as an understatement, <laughs> clearly. Recall the whole team, the car thing. I mean, it couldn't be proved she did it, but it would align with her psychological makeup. Financial problems. While Pam claimed to have great finances, 401ks and everything, she also couldn't afford health insurance. So this is an example of some of those conflicting statements that she made back and forth to police. She lost several insurance jobs, and that's going to blip her insecurity hot button. That is not okay with Pam Hupp's internal dialogue. I generally think the Hupps did all right financially over their 37-year marriage, but the impulsivity, dishonesty, abrasive nature of Pam created some serious potholes. Hence the I'll become the beneficiary and kill Betsy plot. At least that's what it looks like. And this one is just so obvious to us. Lying when it's just as easy to tell the truth. 
Pam's lies are legendary. I think Pam is highly intelligent, devious, but impressed with her own brilliance. She's impulsive, reckless even, and would lock herself into a course of action without giving serious consideration to alternative behaviors or possible consequences, relying on her manipulative skills to make it all work. By the time she killed Louis Gumpenberger, she thought she was a supervillain who may have gotten away with two murders already. She thought her success at murder was all her genius, her schmoozing personality, her ability to manipulate the evidence and the detectives on the case. Never factoring in, never considering that a competent, open-minded police investigation would have jailed her for Betsy's murder in a flash and not Russ. Unfortunately, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office reinforced her belief that she was untouchable, that she was unstoppable. When threatened by Russ's acquittal, when she became the focus of Betsy's murder investigation, she had to turn this around. So she creates this convoluted plot to shift the blame back to Russ again and murders Lewis. Now she is shocked when this is exposed so quickly because her finding is sloppy and exposes her glorified sense of her own brilliance, which turns out to be a handicap for her, thank God. So the distorted self-image, totally, totally Pam Hop. And that thinking impacts mood, values, opinions, relationships, the impulsive behavior can have dangerous outcomes. Inappropriate anger, I think at times she was angry, though I doubt she experienced shame or guilt. She does need the drama to avoid periods of boredom or emptiness. Uh, She loves pulling the marionette strings behind the scenes, controlling others to do her will. And she likely did write those anonymous letters to her friend, Barbara Conti. Now, stress-plagued, paranoid thoughts, suicidal thoughts, which we know is real with her given her suicide by pen attempt. So in my opinion, I find most of this description does apply to Pam's behavior. It is an interesting theory, and there is some evidence of the fall altering her personality for the absolute worst. I mean, you know she's a killer. We know she's a killer. So let me know what you think of my analysis here. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Murder Shelf Book Club, and Shelf underscore Club. Let's talk about this. Update number two. An amazing development came on July 12th, 2021. The Lincoln County Circuit Court, via the Sheriff's Office, filed a new document on the Betsy Faria murder investigation that, one, cleared Russ entirely, and two, established probable cause to charge Pam Hupp with the first-degree murder of Betsy Faria. Prosecuting attorney Mike Wood announced that he would seek the death penalty given the 55 vicious wounds. At the press conference, Wood said, quote, I came to the conclusion that beyond reasonable doubt, Pamela Hupp murdered Betsy Faria, and her motivation was simple, for greed, end quote. On July 27, 2021, Pam formally pled not guilty. Russ Faria sat in court, focused on justice for Betsy, and grateful for Mike Woods and the new investigation. While personally opposed to the death penalty, Russ supports Woods' decision to seek it here. Joined by Carol McAfee, Mary Anderson's cousin, sister Rachel, brother Josh, Russ held a small urn of Betsy's ashes 
so everyone would know she was there too. Alongside Russ, Joel Schwartz, and Nate Swanson. Wood also announced another investigation, this time into possible criminal conduct by the police and prosecutors who went after Russ. Told you about this. Wood believes that these allegations were basically, quote, corroborated in the federal suit filed by Joel Schwartz for Russell Faria, which accused the police and prosecution of conspiracy to violate Russ's civil rights, end quote. Woods also stated he uncovered three separate independent sources who claimed they were, quote, asked to lie on the witness stand by the prosecutor in that case, end quote. Woods would say that this was the worst case of confirmation bias he had ever seen, driven by an agenda rather than the evidence. Wood believes the former prosecutor and police doubled down on this misguided, corrupt effort to convict Russ after his first conviction was overturned, being concerned solely for their own liability. Now, this also came out and was incredibly disturbing. Due to a sunshine request by Fox 2, Chris Hayes, an order of disposal of property of evidence was uncovered. Wait, what? How strange would it be to destroy the Faria evidence in an unsolved murder? What we know is, after Russ was acquitted in November 2015, the previous sheriff department, run by Sheriff John and Prosecutor Leah Askey, the destruction order was prepared. Also missing from the evidence were 13 police interviews with Pam Hupp, where former Lincoln County officers Patrick Horney and Captain Mike Merkel appeared to be coaching Hupp's responses, resulting in Pam shifting her statements to be in agreement with a Harney-Merkel theory that Russ arriving home caused Pam to leave the night Betsy was killed. Fox 2 confirmed that the signature on the destruction order belongs to Captain Mike Merkel's wife, Betty Muller Merkel. She has issued no comment. The 13 interviews were ultimately recovered. None of those being investigated here are currently employed with the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office. And to protect the Faria evidence, it was turned over to the St. Charles Police for safekeeping. What a sad state of affairs. Holy mackerel. More recently, Wood told the public, quote, I don't know where this investigation will go, but I will take it wherever it leads. My only goal is to establish confidence and restore faith in the judicial system, end quote. Fun fact, perjury in a murder case is a class A felony, and there is no statute of limitations. Regarding this investigation, on April 16th, 2022, Russ said, quote, the detectives, Harney, Merkel, and especially McCarrick, are nothing but a bunch of sadistic, untrained monkeys. They have their heads so far up their respective asses that they will never see the light of day. McCarrick is so low that a curb looks like the Great Wall of China to him. Merkel is a little runt that probably became a cop because he has little man syndrome. Harvey is just a moron and an idiot who probably can't tie his own shoes. The rest of them should go join the Keystone Cops, end quote. Well, don't hold back, Russ. Good for you. I think you should be heard, which is why I am sharing. Update number three. Mid-July 2021, Lincoln County Undersheriff Randy Lambert 
interviewed Pam from the Chillicothe Correction Center in northern Missouri. And he said that Pam was, quote, anxiously waiting on us. You could see her from the window when we first arrived, basically waving at us, end quote. He added this insight, quote, this time we had our notepads and we set a pen down and she actually made the statement, don't leave that pen around. You know how dangerous things can get with me with a pen, end quote, referencing her suicide attempt by pen. Huh. Because of the ongoing investigation, Sheriff Lambert could only speak in general terms about it to Fox 2, Chris Hayes again. By the end of interviewing Hupp, Lambert said he was exhausted, adding that Pam did not confess, that she, quote, also gave little statements and hints here and there, enough to point where she is willing to get on the stand and testify. She likes the idea of being called a serial killer. It gives her some kinds of prestige in prison, giving her some status, end quote. He said that Pam is intelligent, witty, and knows how to play the game, how to do an interview. And it was challenging. This was not easy. Pam also wanted Lambert's phone number so they could talk more in the future. Ever inappropriate, Pam. Update number four. Somewhat miffed by Wood's allegations of incompetence and investigation into the corruption in the Faria case, in March 2020, in an interview with KSDK crime reporter Christine Byers, Leah Askey Cheney denied any improper, unethical, or illegal activities while prosecuting Russ Faria through two trials, which she still calls valid. She insists she never withheld evidence or told any witnesses to lie. This is just plain character assassination. And Leah said she found no substantiated evidence that Pam Hupp could be the killer. Huh. Right, that's called denial, and she is deluded. Or is she just covering her ass? Just before the second trial, remember that Leah told Pam Hupp, quote, there is not a moment I've lost sleep because Russ Faria is in prison. I feel very comfortable with that decision, end quote. Clearly, she has not moved from this position. The wrong one, for the record. Today, Leah Askey Cheney is feeling uncomfortable. It was so unfair that she couldn't respond to these accusations with Russ's case pending or until she was dismissed as a defendant in his lawsuit, which, by the way, happened three years ago. With hindsight, Leah Askey Cheney regrets running for prosecutor, and it's the worst thing that ever happened to her was winning the conviction against Russ. Not convicting an innocent man. That's not the worst thing that ever happened. But being prosecutor. Oh, how's that moral compass doing, Leah? It's all about her. It is ego-driven, radar-focused on selfishness. If you recall, in the Bike Path Killer book trilogy, a man named Anthony Capozzi was wrongfully convicted and spent 20 years in prison. When this came to light, the judge who sentenced Capozzi made a sincere, profound apology to him and his family. During the trial, two witnesses had identified Anthony Capozzi as their rapist. She said she only had that information at the time, and the system had failed him, as DNA evidence conducted two decades later proved that it was Altimio Sanchez, the rapist. Now, compare that with Leah Cheney's concerns and complaints. She 
wrongfully convicted a man, tried him twice. Yet, the worst thing that ever happened to her was being elected prosecutor. Oh, poor Leia. Russ went to jail for over three years, his life imploding as he grieved for his murdered wife. And Leia Cheney's worst day can't even be compared to what she inflicted on Russ Faria. How utterly tone deaf. Please, it just remains all about her. She's a narcissist, and I find her reprehensible and unrepentant. And she's still not finished complaining. April 2022, she's also not happy with her portrayal in the NBC TV series, The Thing About Pam. Quote, it's not at all me, and it's not what happened. End quote. Uh Uh-huh. All right, evidence indicates otherwise, based on the words that have come out of her mouth. May 2022, Leia was interviewed by Dateline with some magnificent eye-rolling by Keith Morrison. Reflecting on this, the overturning of the conviction, losing the election, Pam Hupp taking an Alfred plea after killing Grumpenberger, her arrest for the murder of Betsy Faria. What does Leah Cheney think now? Keith asked her, quote, maybe she could change direction, end quote. And her response, it's not my place to change direction, with Keith interrupting her, saying, quote, it's totally your place to change directions. That's what you do. You're a prosecutor, end quote. Keith asked her if it was possible that she, quote, had fallen hook, line, and sinker for every dodge, every ruse that Pamha put out there to make it look like Russ was a murderer and not her, and that maybe it's you who are the dupe. End quote. And Leia says, quote, I've been duped before. Wouldn't surprise me at all to find I've been duped. I can tell you I can only base my decisions off my training, my experience, my education, and my moral compass. End quote. Asked if she still believes Russ is guilty, she stammered, quote, I have never been presented with any information that suggests that someone else committed this crime. End quote. Wait, what was it Judge Ulmer said about the first trial that it was disturbing? So go read the first trial, Leia. She is rigid, self-centered, and completely morally bankrupt. And she doesn't get it a decade later. She lives her life through denial. She's speaking as a prosecutor, saved with broad, corrupt prosecutorial immunity. And she's not being held responsible for any miscarriage of justice, nor the deadly consequences, and certainly not as a person. Where is that moral compass now, Leah? Detective Raymond Floyd, who helped put his innocent man in jail, has spoken out as well. He is upset at the dark comedic aspects of the thing about Pam. It's despicable because, quote, they almost portray it as a black comedy. And there was nothing funny about that investigation, end quote. So that's his problem with that, is the tone of the TV series. However, however, Lloyd is quoted in an article in The Independent saying, quote, I actually was the initial person that interviewed Russ the very first day. Russ got hosed. He 100% got hosed. He got railroaded and the wrong person is in jail, end quote. 
Okay, that's a little bit refreshing. Leah, ask he can learn from him. The most significant update, and this is truly, truly important. Russ Faria posted this on Facebook on May 14th, 2022. So I was in Babylon this evening for some drinks with friends. This person comes up to talk to me. If you don't recognize him, his name is Raymond Floyd, and he was one of the officers involved in my case. You may recognize him from the many videos as a person who first accused me after telling me I failed the polygraph. He came up to speak to me to express his deepest apologies to me for his part. His apology was very sincere and heartfelt. I am truly touched. This is history. He assured me he has learned so much because of my case and is dedicated to be better and to be exposing corruption. Raymond Floyd, you have my respect. Thank you for having the courage to say, I'm sorry. It means so much. End quote. Chokes me up a little bit, guys. When I spoke to Russ about sharing this for the podcast, he said this, quote, it's a very important part of the story, I think. I've been going around and talking about these cops and calling them by name, and I would not feel right if this news didn't get told as well. It was really something special and historic. I know of no one in my position that has gotten an apology. People need to know that there are really some good guys out there. Feel free to quote me on that, end quote. That is huge. That is huge for both Russ and for Raymond Floyd. And I hope this is another positive outcome from this boondoggle. And the photo of Russ with Raymond Floyd together is on my blog. You need to see that one. You really do. Okay, so where are Leah Day and Mariah Day now? Betsy's daughters admitted that they harbored suspicions about Pam after Betsy's murder. The former prosecutor and investigators assured them that their stepdad, Russ, was the only possible suspect, and they believed it. In February 2020, Leah told writer Christy Morota, quote, I kept thinking something was wrong, something was off, end quote. Mariah added that detectives would tell her, quote, Pop physically couldn't do this. They always had a snarky response. They kind of made me feel stupid for asking. They just kind of made my feelings feel invalid, end quote. So update number six. Today, Betsy's daughter and stepfather, Russ, are estranged. In an interview with Fox 2 Now, Leah said that officials broke our family apart. Mariah added, quote, and not only did we lose our mom, we lost both our parents because of their investigation. If there's something I could say to Russ from the bottom of my heart, I am so sorry for all the things you went through. If I could go back, I would, but I can't change the past. So we can just move forward and hope for justice. End quote. Leah May confirmed that she hopes her mom knows, quote, we are very strong women and we have our own beautiful families, and life could not be better at the moment, end quote. Both say it's imperative that they pray for the truth to come out about Betsy's murder, and now we await an upcoming trial of Pam Hupp, and true justice for Betsy will hopefully prevail, end quote. Mariah reached out to make this last statement, quote, we need to bring more awareness to wrongful convictions and the effect it has on families and the influence these people in authority have when they abuse their power. I am glad to see where the investigation goes with the initial corrupt investigation of my mother's case, and I hope those individuals are held accountable for their actions and negligence, end quote. 
We agree 100%, Mariah. At CrimeCon, Russ told me that he still loves the girls, and he always will, and he wishes them well. But here is the big but. When a relationship goes toxic, you move ahead and you leave that behind. So they can all go forward and have good lives, but not together. Some have been critical of Russ's position on this. Not me. I respect Russ's choices. I do not judge him. I cannot fathom what he has suffered, the grief, the betrayal, the loss. Life isn't a kutchy TV dramatic series. It belongs to the individuals living that life. And we need to respect decisions and understand boundaries. I'm feeling a little protective of Russ myself. So let's leave him alone when it comes to this. He has had enough. So let's have some respect. Update number seven. As reported in the May 2020 Dateline, after Pam was charged with the murder of Betsy, Joel Schwartz received a phone call from Janet Meyer, Betsy's mother. She was crying and she made Joel promise to tell Russ that she was sorry, cursing Askey and Sergeant Ryan McCarrick, who had convinced her that her son-in-law, who she did love, committed this horrific crime. It is sad and truth will set you free. And I truly hope Janet is okay. Fortunately, today Russ is happy with Carol McAfee in his life. Russ is ever the positive thinker, quote, out of all this bad and this bad, bad evil person, I mean, she's evil incarnate. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't have met this lovely lady here. And I think we both make each other pretty happy, end quote. And this makes me smile, like the whole egregious situation coming full cycle. And their news is Carol and Russ got engaged in October 2021 with Russ planning their wedding. Update number eight. I wanted to share with you something Carol told me with her permission. When she first caught the interest of the media, she had a broken front tooth cap. And people can be thoughtless and cruel commenting on this in social media like they do. Why hadn't Russ fixed this for her? He's got money now. Pretty woman, but fix the tooth and other nasty cutting comments. Well, this is the gist of Carol's response. You know, I'm a grown woman. I have my own money. I work two jobs to save up to fix my tooth. And it's my tooth. I'll fix it myself. Russ's money is his money, not mine. It's also blood money. So I will wait and pay for it myself, which is exactly what she did. Now, I think this tells us all something about the caliber of this woman and why she's so special to Russ. She is vibrant, strong, has immense common sense, and doesn't expect Russ to pay for everything for her. It is not about the money. She is not a gold digger. It's about integrity, loyalty, respect, love, and fun. I wish them every happiness, and they deserve it. I consider them my friends. So we think some of the nastiness that runs on social media people because we can choose differently and we can do better. Today, Russ is working in that motorcycle shop. He's working on the Innocence Project. Quote, it's my way of giving back because I could still be in prison today. I could still be there right now fighting for my freedom. End quote. Though he will always love and miss and mourn Betsy, he avoids bitterness by valuing Pam Hupp being held into account, her being behind bars for the rest of her life. He cannot wait to testify at her trial, something that he did not do at either of his, 
and he relishes being able to speak the truth and see her convicted for murdering Betsy. He admits to being angry at Judge Christine Menenmeyer for the injustice she inflicted upon him. Russ Maria focuses on this statement, quote, the best revenge is to live well, end quote. And I love that. I really love that. Now, here is a treat for you. Just to have a little bit of fun with some of you out there. I asked some of my murder bookies a few questions on Facebook in the Thing About Pam group. What was, you know, the evidence that you cannot believe Prosecutor Leia Askey dismissed? How excited were you when you learned about Russ and Carol getting engaged? And here's a few of their responses. Josie Lane wrote, The enactment with Lewis, shooting him in cold blood while she was sure for him to stand on the little baby rug so her carpet wouldn't get stained with his blood. Two, Leia would not allow Joel to bring up Pam's name in the Betsy Faria case. And that's a slam dunk for me. And three, maybe she and Russ were lonely and needed companionship. If Russ is happy, I'm happy for him. Josie, Carol and I talk more about this in our interview, and that's coming up in two weeks. Patty Miller Post, when she killed Lewis, looking out for a potential victim is weird. But for me, that just showed how callous she was. But for her to actually find a victim and then go through with killing him with no regret to anyone is when it hit me as to what she was all about. The piece of evidence Leia Askey dismissed that Pam was the last person to see Betsy. I mean, really, how the hell can you even dismiss that? But she sure did, didn't she? I was glad to hear that something good came out of this in regards to Russ and Carol getting engaged. Congrats to them both. Kirsty Carey, the fact that Pam inserted herself into Betsy's life, starting with her reestablishing a friendship post-Betsy's cancer diagnosis speaks volumes. Regarding any assumptions regarding Russ, I'm appalled that they did not even swab Pam's car and instantly eliminate her in spite of all the changing details. Regarding Russ and Carol, it is interesting. It's so nice they found each other. Liz Gullis. I know this took place later, but the way Pam and her husband skipped out of court really got to me. Oh, that bugged me too. It totally did. Dina M. Holland. The piece of evidence, the time-stamped food receipt. But Leah Cheney says she's never seen a piece of evidence that showed anybody else could do it. So it had to be Russ, even if he did have all this evidence that he couldn't do it. Anyway, that wraps up episode 43 on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Betsy Faria murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz. Read the book. It is my sincere wish for you. The CrimeCon interview is coming up next. You are going to learn a lot of backstory, a lot of missing puzzle pieces, and it is an eye-opener, full of lessons about dealing with adversity as well. And my next book is American Predator by journalist Maureen Callahan. I hope you've been reading along because this is another book that leaves you shaking your head. For 14 years, Israel Keyes was one of the most ambitious and terrifying serial killers in modern history. Terrifying. He abducts his victims in broad daylight and kills and disposes of them in mere hours. And then he would return home to Alaska, resuming his life as a construction worker and dad to his daughter. 
chilling story. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. The link is on my blog. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershopbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information, show notes, photographs are on my blog as well. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena, lyrics by Otto Harbach.